0: Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply
1: chain together.
0: Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar.
2: Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar, and joining me today is Peter Tershwell and Eric Johnson from IHS Market, JOC. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Eric.
0: Great to be here, Santosh. Thanks so much for having me back.
1: Hi, Santosh. Good to be here with you.
2: Yeah, yeah. Great to have you both on, and, and we don't do many of these, but occasionally we, we have you know multiple guests on. Uh, at, at any given time, and Peter, you're a new voice to the future supply chain. So, I would love uh you know introduction and to hear about how you ended up uh, in the wonderful world of supply chain <laughs> as we know it.
1: Well, terrific, Santosh. It's great to be here with you. Uh, you know, I have a uh, long career in business journalism focused on international logistics and ocean containers. Uh, I I joined the a journal of commerce back in the 1990s uh, out of business school when it was a uh, still a daily print newspaper uh, as it had been since the 1820s and and I've been covering the market ever since uh, you know our our organization has gone, gone through a lot of iterations we you know were able to uh, launch TPM in 2001 we Discontinued the print daily in the year 2000. The year before that, but uh, it's just been a, a great pleasure to work consistently with a with a team of a very specialized, um, very dedicated, very knowledgeable, very well connected journalists like Eric uh, in uh, in covering this market day in and day out.
2: Absolutely, and and Eric. Uh you know was uh on episode 38 uh earlier this year and uh is the technology editor uh at, at the JOC Eric great to have you back on you're actually the first guest uh that's done a, a repeat
0: <laughs> oh cool uh, that's a that's a feather in my cap so i'll uh <laughs> i'll 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 brag to my wife about that later
2: indeed indeed um so you know i i thought uh an interesting uh back and forth i've had with uh Eric on on twitter would be to Centered this discussion around the container lines and you know talking about their future, because uh, you know it's it's been certainly a dynamic year, and uh, you know 2020 has you know forced change across many dimensions, right? Professionally, personally, for for all of us. Uh, but I'd be curious, you know, uh, you know, amongst uh, both of you, like wh- what's the current state of uh, the nation in the container business? Like what are executives thinking about? What are they not thinking about? How do they generally feel uh, about this year?
1: Well, Santosh, I would tell you that it depends who you ask. Because if you ask the the shippers, in other words, if you ask the retailers, the the consumer product companies, the organizations that are bringing goods in principally from Asia into the United States and into North America, they're not particularly happy. And the reason is Twofold that the the rates have shot up to historic levels. Uh, they've never been as high as they are now. Uh, you know, hovering around four thousand dollars per container uh, from China to the West Coast. These are levels that you know that nobody really has seen in their yeah. careers. Yeah, and that's and that's combined with uh, congestion and delays, and and this is because the the carriers have been experiencing difficulties getting. Empty containers back to Asia, so empty containers to to be filled up with consumer goods are hard to find in Asia. Uh, It's because the volume of cargo arriving at U.S. ports, particularly L.A. Long Beach right now is uh, is overwhelming the ports, the entire supply chain's ability to handle the deluge. There aren't enough chassis. Uh, truckers are waiting in lines outside terminals, and as a result of that, they're only getting a couple. They can only handle maybe one or two loads a day versus their normal three or four. So the whole the whole system really has seized up, and and so therefore, it's you know, for the, from the importer's perspective, they're not happy. From the ocean carriers' perspective, this has turned out to be a a much better year financially than they thought it would. <laughs> We were to go back to uh, March or April.
0: Yeah, I, I, I sort of uh, am, I think about this in the context of the the financial crisis and what that did to the container shipping industry. Obviously, th- you know, COVID nineteen is a totally different type of crisis from an economic perspective than that was. But if you would have told the industry especially the container lines at the beginning of 2020 that volume would diminish this year i think we're projecting ihs markets projecting somewhere in the neighborhood of nine percent globally that volume is going down um will go down this year if you had said volume will go down nine percent at the beginning of this year and yet you will be more profitable than you were last year. I think you would have had a lot of people in the, in the industry who would have needed smelling salts because (laughs) literally unthinkable relative to the last decade where, um, you know, most every line was struggling to contain, uh, costs on, on vessel orders and, and marry that with rates that were compensatory for, you know, their costs. So it's, it's really been a dramatic change this year.
2: And, um, you know, is there is there a player in the container landscape like we're we're seeing the headlines right? Like you're generally seeing the Mers, um, make headlines. CMA CGM made headlines uh, earlier in the week, maybe not for for the most positive things. Uh, but like, is, is there a player here that that's going overlooked um, that is doing really great things or is you know at the precipice of you know kind of being really well known? And and that we should pay attention to.
1: I think that in some ways, Santosh, the the container carriers tend to be viewed as as a group when, when actually, they're very different from each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean, you have companies like uh, Hapag Lloyd and ONE, which is the which resulted from the merger of three Japanese carriers that are very focused on being what you might call basic. Ocean container carriers, yeah, but just really, really well, and and providing you know a high quality of service, a high degree of reliability, and managing their business exceptionally well, so as to be able to make money. And then you have another group who are you might put CMA CGM, who you just mentioned, and Maersk in that category, who are kind of trying to push the envelope in terms of the business model itself, and in essence, taking traditional container carriage and extending it into a end-to-end scenario. Because if you were to look at where the money has been made in container transport and container logistics over many years, it really hasn't been in the ocean portion. It's mm-hmm. been like customs, warehousing, trucking. And and even though container carriers have long held ambitions to try to get into that market uh, and in the past, they they have created logistics companies like APL Logistics or Uson Logistics, uh, which came out of ocean carriers, even Damco as well, which uh, which which is part of uh, part of Maersk. Uh, what they've never really done is is integrate the whole thing into one single offering, and. And that is, is explicitly what Maersk is doing. So it's very pioneering in that respect, doing something that really has never been attempted before. And CMA is doing it to a certain degree because they have acquired a large freight forwarder, uh, that being SEVA Logistics, yep. and are packaging up services in a way so as to create kind of an end-to-end offering to their customers. So,
2: so what's... Uh, What's driving this strategy shift? Is it that uh, when when people are looking at their financials, they're saying that um, the the margin actually attributable to surface transportation and warehousing? So we actually need to uh, go back to that diversification effort that we've seen historically, or or is it a customer pull? Like, w- what's kind of behind this uh, integration ambition?
0: I I think there's a couple different uh catalysts um want you know for the publicly traded carriers um and uh maersk is in that group um hapag lloyds in that group um it, i you know i think maersk specifically looked at their relative position in the market and said why why is our business as a value driver for shareholders maybe not equivalent to the the reputation and size that we have in the market you know what why are those two things kind of not at parity or even close to parity so i think that was a, a certainly a catalyst i think they saw that um the a little bit of the writing on the wall in terms of the way that platforms uh, commerce platforms were emerging so your Amazon's and Alibaba is not necessarily that those companies were going to get in, you know, start to verge into Maersk's uh, area of strength, but just, you know, why be on the sidelines of all of these sort of discrete transactions that can occur and are connected to these platforms when you can kind of enter and you know be a larger player in that in that platform economy? So. Um, y- I think those, if I had to speculate as to what the two biggest drivers are, um, I would suggest that those were, were the two biggest. I think there's also, you know, bigger picture. I think there a been a realization since sort of the period of consolidation in the industry a few years ago that simply ordering bigger and bigger ships was not going to get the industry to a place where it was going to be able to you know, serve its customers well and be profitable doing so. And I think there's been a real mindset shift in that regard. And and that plays into similarly, like if you, if you're not spending money on a hundred million dollar vessel, you are, uh, you're free to spend money on, in other areas that are a little bit more closer to, you know, the customer and value and sort of more directly value driving.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know that I, I kind of have two threads I'd I'd want to pull on there. Um, the the first is uh interestingly you you brought up the concept like everybody's gone out and uh they've either um manufactured or placed orders for more vessels over the years or they're just making larger vessels so there's greater capacity and uh both of those just simple supply demand you know tends to depress sea rates and i think uh peter mentioned a few moments ago like rates are surging um the liners are actually doing really well. Uh, I think like MERS netted uh, over four hundred million dollars in the most recent quarter. Uh, CMA, CGM, you know, I think uh, over $100 um, a hundred million. Around rates, like, do you expect this to normalize anytime soon, or is this something that is going to go back to norm? You know, twelve to eighteen months from now, and we're just going to have to withstand the eight thousand dollar you know trans Pacific rates we're seeing.
1: Well, well, I would say, Santosh, that the answer to that is that it's un- unclear for sure. But that said, there are a growing number of people who believe that we are witnessing a fundamental shift in the container world. So if you were to go back over the last decade, last two decades, even, you will see certain characteristics of the market. Uh, one being chronic overcapacity, uh, volatility of rates, container carriers largely unable to create value through their pricing and through their services, and as a result, taking action that benefits themselves on the cost side rather than benefiting their customers. So if you say that a container carrier... Uh, their pricing is commodity pricing based on supply and demand. The, the market is going to go where, it, where it's going to go. If you're a container line, the only recourse you have is to control your costs. Mm-hmm. So what did they do? They slowed down the ships. Uh, container vessel speeds are 25% below what they were, what they were 15 years ago. Uh, they built larger ships. Why? Because that reduces the per container cost. Of the vessel, they've worked on uh, they've worked on uh, things like uh, getting in and out of port faster. Because if you can do that, then you can take greater advantage of slow steaming and still make your next port on time. Uh, many customers will complain that they, you know, cut back on on things like uh, customer service. And so, so in a way, the the to, to the degree that the carriers made any really big moves, it, it was what they did on their on their own behalf to help themselves which directly in a way disadvantaged their customers but in the in the course of of what happened uh, the situation has changed and and it changed for uh, a number of reasons one of them is consolidation so over the last 5 years the number of major container lines operating on the east west trades has has dropped by half uh, you know, major carriers are, are no longer in the market. We talked about O.N.E. being the consolidation of the three Japanese lines. Uh, you saw United Arab get absorbed into Hatpec Lloyd. Uh, Hamburg Su get absorbed into Maersk. You saw China shipping get absorbed into Costco and then O.O.C.L. get absorbed into Costco as well. And so uh, then, then the other, Development actually two big developments is, is that uh, the the carriers organize themselves into global alliances, and as a result of that, started to get increasingly agile in withdrawing capacity on a short term basis. In other words, I see that demand is dropping. I can very quickly blank a sailing in industry parlance. In other words, I'm just going to cancel cancel the sailing, and and as a result of that. Uh, the, the carriers are now in a position, as, as we have seen this year, where they were able to withdraw capacity very quickly when the lockdown occurred, and then uh, only belatedly sort of restored capacity, um, in part because uh, they were making a lot of money, but also in part because uh, they, according to them, they didn't see the, uh, the, the demand surge coming, which eventually happened this year.
2: And, uh, you know, it, the, uh, the, the one thing you were touching on there is, uh, kind of concepts around yield management. And I was, uh, speaking to a former executive last week from MERSC and, you know, he was, uh, explaining to me how Merck really is the only liner that has, you know, this, um, yield management down to a science. And uh, I'd be curious, like, what, what have other insiders told you? Like, how have they articulated the strategy uh, around managing their, their assets and keeping customers happy while also being mindful of their costs? Is it a science or is it more so kind of this tends to wax and wane based on who's in a management position at that time?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's an art and a science combined. Um, You know, it requires like anything to do anything really well. requires a lot of experience and and circumstances change, markets change, uh, the trade flows change, economic growth rates change, availability of supply, availability of containers, customer needs. I mean, it's such a dynamic market and always has been that in order to effectively manage your fleet. Uh, you, you, know, you, you know, the need for really good people in charge uh, is never going to go away. And, and that was the reason why, in part, why when, when Soren Toft, who was the chief operating officer of Maersk, uh, was, was hired as the, the CEO of MSC, and he's going to start in that role in December, um, after being held to hit the the full term of a of a one year non compete if if he left to join a competitor that's one of the reasons why that was so significant because Soren Toth was seen as you know one of the sort of industry leaders in you know in in you know man you know managing the operational side of a, of a large container shipping business and so without question that was a loss for Mersk when he left the company
0: and yeah. Yeah. Josh, if I, if I just jump in really quick, um, you know, there's a technology component to this. And then there's a sort of experience component um, that I think kind of gets at your science versus art question. Um, I, you know, if you think about this, like, If you think about space on a vessel like, uh, you know, other kind of latent capacity that is, you know, being dynamically priced, whether it's, uh, you know, a seat on an airplane or a ticket to a concert when we used to do those things, um, it's, it's a bit different obviously because generally speaking, container lines had better forecasts into knowing when volume was coming than an airline does. An airline has no idea I'm about to buy a plane ticket eight weeks out, right? They, they hope I, you know, they they, they obviously have some technology that goes into that, but they're essentially just pricing things as if I I have no intention to, to do it until I actually book it, right? And th- that's not the case. You're, you're dealing with shippers who are giving some sort of indication as much as eight to 12 weeks out that I am planning to use space on your vessel at that point. So there's always been I think a little bit better um, understanding of that, but it wasn't granular enough for them to price as effectively as they poss- as they probably should have been. And I think now we're getting to a point where a the technology is kind of coale- is kind of uh, matured and if for those that are using it and it's coalescing with a you know kind of a better understanding of being profitable on each, each move. Um, and I think that's what we've seen this year as much as anything. It's just carriers being smart and sticking to that, you know, sticking to their guns in terms of, okay, this is, it's better to, to keep this space open uh, than to take unprofitable cargo and have a container positioned in a place. I don't want it anyway. Right. So uh, is there, these are all things, this is nothing necessarily new. It's just, the ability to make those decisions in a shorter period of time, I think has improved drastically.
2: That's, that's an interesting point. I, I, I'd be curious, like what have you seen uh, from this group? Um, especially kind of in the context of 2020 um, was expected to be um, quite turbulent, maybe not a positive year. It's ended up being a financial success operationally. we, we discussed some of the headlines, but like, how have people thought about investing in technology? Um, has that been something that's continued, or has that taken a backseat to you know wanting stability before recommitting to a particular strategy?
1: I would just start off and and just turn turn this over to Eric, as this is his real area of expertise. But for the liners themselves, uh, technology has been a a long slow haul, and. And they are, uh, as a group, sort of behind on technology. Uh, if you look at some of the leaders in technology, Maersk being among them, uh, slowly but surely, they are coming around to being a, uh, a digital organization. I mean, the chairman of Maersk for the last four years uh, is a guy named Jim Snaby, who uh, in a prior role was the CEO of SAP. Mm-hmm. And Maersk has been relentlessly driving towards a digital strategy and now introducing digital products and beginning to, uh, beginning to really move in a significant way away from the sort of paper-based transactions that had always characterized this industry. Uh, and, and you can kind of feel that that at least at Maersk, it it may be gaining momentum in terms of how uh, familiar they are, how comfortable they are with technology, how how daring they're willing to be in pushing the envelope into areas where they've never used technology before. Uh, so, um, and then the other carriers uh, are, are behind and and the ones that are really behind are way behind. Uh, so so the you know the I think the um the appetite for the liners to be investing in technology is 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 high, but their ability to adopt technology is you know remains fairly slow. Mm,
2: important distinction.
0: Yeah, I, I would I would say, you know, to go back to something Peter said about, you know, the the industry not being a monolith, uh there's there's such variable uh kind of uh, approaches to Everything, really, uh, and that includes technology adoption. One thing I'll say is that I think across the board, uh, carriers are, you know, and when we say carrier, I'm talking about like the top, you know, 12 to 15 carriers. Um, There's obviously a lot more than that, but those are the ones that control, you know, 90, 95% of global capacity are more amenable to being kind of driven or, or nudged um, by technology providers than they were in the past. Um, you know, I, when when the top European lines started unveiling uh, instant quoting tools, you you saw there's a, a there's technology providers in Asia that are you know working with company with the carriers that are based in Asia to sort of bring them up to par with those same type of quoting uh, capabilities. And and so it's it's I I, I think all of them recognize that they need to to sort of let the technology guide them a little bit as opposed to finding some technology and and ramming it into their existing kind of framework. Um, But again, it's it's kind of a long, slow process. And uh, I think the Maersk example, and we've talked about them a lot, but I think that's a really instructive thing because most shippers and every single major forwarder work with, every, with a range of, of carriers, if not most of those 12 to 15, right? You don't go, you as a large shipper don't put all of your eggs in one carrier's basket. So you are, when you work with four or five carriers, you are sort of walking in knowing I'm going to be working with four or five companies at totally different stages of their technical or technological proficiency they're going to have very different op service offerings. And so it's up to you as a shipper or, or your forwarder in between to kind of even out those differences. I think essentially what Maersk is and, and, and CMA and some of the others that have ambitions about being kind of more end-to-end providers are, are hoping is that they can start to you know approach a shipper and say, you actually need to work with us primarily and have maybe a contingency carrier in a, on a certain lane but not be in a situation where you're just sort of pitting us against another carrier uh, merely to drive down rates between the two of us, because our services are pretty equal and you, you have to juggle a bunch of different kind of technological requirements anyway.
2: Yep. Their hope
0: is go all in with us. We'll provide you all the services and, and, and it won't even be an apples to apples comparison. So I think, you know, it's going to be up to the rest of the industry to kind of, is is probably going to either uh, you know address that similarly, or they're going to be dragged into addressing it if they didn't want to.
2: So, uh, c- kind of coming back to the the integrator concept, a lot of it also has to do with uh, integrating uh, the the experience, the satisfaction. Right. It's it's one thing to integrate capability, right, and and point to a financial reason. But ultimately, it's coming down to there's a lot of competition in the market. The way we can actually stand apart is we made a lot of investments in technology. But still, because there's such fragmentation uh, in the process, if we actually show up and say we could do everything, you're actually just happier. And uh, most times, emotion uh, can lead to a lot of financial benefit as well for a company. So if you feel less frustrated, if you feel happier even if we might be slightly higher on cost, you'll tend to use us. Is that, is that kind of a fair read?
1: Well, I would say, uh, Santosh, in response to that, it's, it's definitely unproven. Uh, the, the model is unproven. Traditionally, large uh, shipper organizations uh, tend to want to diversify their, their supplier base to reduce risk. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't want to have all your, your containers on a hunch ship, and then it goes belly up. Uh, and they want to use, uh, you know, any, any number of carriers, they want to add some, some freight forwarders to the mix. So the idea of depending on one carrier is, uh, you know, to kind of cut runs grain in terms of how international logistics is typically sourced uh, right now. But, but you, uh, as a, as a Merck, for example, if, you know there are things that you can potentially bring to the table that that cannot be achieved in in other scenarios for example control when they called themselves a global integrator of container logistics which is how they defined their strategy uh, integrator is the term that's that's used to apply to a UPS or a FedEx mm-hmm. or it's it's an integrated system end to end and Maersk is saying, well, look, we control the ships, we control the marine terminals because they have a large marine terminal operating business. They're, they're one of the largest in the world. Uh, we can control the trucking. We can control the warehousing. Uh, Maersk acquired a performance team on the West Coast, which is a, 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 a deconsolidation and e-commerce business. Uh, the, the, the Damco, a part of the Damco business that was integrated into Merck, is a, is an origin consolidation and destination deconsolidation business. Uh, now they don't control railroads, uh, but they can control trucking. And if you can control the asset or if the assets, and if you can, and, and you can control the information uh, and you your digitizing vis- visibility, for example, well, I guess the premise is is that that's a combination that can guarantee reliability and can guarantee control of inventory and transit that is more difficult to achieve in the traditional scenario where you're handing the you know the container and the, the cargo is being handed off from one party to the next all the way down the chain.
2: Yep. That's a really clear way of uh, of articulating it. So i I, I have a question. Um, do you both think that we're entering a prolonged period where global trade volumes slow? Right, we're we're kind of seeing this overhang of nationalistic um, sentiment. Is this going to continue?
1: Well, I can I can tell you, Santosh, just in the data. Uh, because I looked at this data for my column this week. And if you were to look at average annual global container growth, so if you were to look at the period of 2001, which was the year China entered the World Trade Organization to 2005, that global annual growth figure was nearly 9%, 8.9%. Then if you go to 2006 to 2010 it had dropped to 5.7%. Now we go from 2011 to 2015 it had dropped to 3.4% mm. and then 2016 to 2020 it's below 1%. So yeah, it's it's absolutely slowing.
2: So would would an integrator strategy in such an environment maybe offset the risks of lower container volumes, lower air volumes, things are maybe moving on surface or or intra-nation, intra-trade block more?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think that you can ever defeat geopolitical risk. I mean, if geopolitical risk is heightened, then that is going to argue more in favor of regionalized trade. You know, and certainly that's what we've seen. I mean, there have been a, a huge proliferation of regional trade agreements. Uh, when was the last time the World Trade Organization was was expanded in, in any significant way? Uh, the last expansion of the WTO was was a, a relatively mundane agreement relating to customs procedures. You know, certainly it never touched big issues like agriculture subsidies or you know the type of 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 major. Uh, uh initiatives that could really level the playing field of global trade. And so you could you could certainly see that the container carriers are are entering into a era right now where the 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 global consensus on trade, which had kind of been in place during the heyday of the World Trade Organization, the the, the entry of China into the WTO, uh, those days really are gone, and and but yet, to be honest with you, and we've seen this is that there is a there are limitations on your ability to uh, essentially dismantle global supply chains. You know, take everything that is made in China and suddenly move it to Mexico. Uh, you 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 can't even take it and move it to Vietnam or or Bangladesh or Indonesia. Yes, the the percent of Asia origin cargo that is coming from those other places is growing, as China as the percent coming from China is is falling. But it's a, it's a long, slow process to get the quality of merchandise that you need to develop relationships with manufacturers to really get your supply chains honed. So. You know, yes, but you know, this all is happening at a somewhat glacial pace.
0: Yeah, if I, I, I want to address kind of two things. One is, uh, you know, the numbers that Peter mentioned speak for themselves, and I think we all have this innate sense that it is slowing down. The question I think is, you know, it, it grew so quickly in the first half of the of the two thousands um, uh, that wasn't sustainable, obviously, as it turns out. Um, but it doesn't mean that global trade can't kind of slowly keep expanding. And I think uh, yeah, I think there's sort of this been this knee-jerk reaction this year that, that you know kind of things like additive manufacturing and, and people wanting and carbon emissions and the impact of all this thing are going to inexorably shrink supply chains. It's really hard and, and also the protectionist stuff, it's really hard sometimes to see, out 10 years uh, from the constraints that you are within right now. And and I'll give an example. Um, I started writing about this industry in 2003. I can remember the very first kind of big interview I did was I got to speak to, and, and Peter, Peter, you'll remember this. Uh, I got to do an interview with the executive director of the Port of Long Beach at at the time. Uh, His name was Dick Steinke. When I walked into this conference room, this is 2003. There was a uh, a big poster board with a uh, uh, I think it was called Vision 2020 plan. And at that point, the two ports of LA and Long Beach were planning for the volume at that point to something like triple or more than triple. It was the the the, the thinking was that there was going to be somewhere between 30 to 35 million TEUs of of capacity coming through there. I don't know what we're at right now, but it's at least half of that. Um, right. So there's a there is a, a problem that we as humans all have that we kind of take the immediate, you know, circle around us and, and extrapolate that out into the future. And we can't foresee, you know, what sort of dynamics are going to maybe compel people to rely on global trade more than they are or more than they think they are now. Um, but I think it, it's it's much easier to p- kind of pull back and restrict than it is to grow. It took a long time to grow the the global trade environment, um, to the point it was in kind of like the mid two thousands when it was, you know, just exploding year on year. Um, and, and it seems really unlikely we'll ever get back to that kind of state.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've, uh, certainly covered a a lot of ground, but it, it feels, um, it feels proper to, to kind of close out with, uh, what BCOs are are telling you both, right? We we discussed the liners. We peppered in some of the forwarders, uh, where you're talking about kind of trade or, or the state of trade here has been in decline. What are the BCOs thinking about as they wind down uh, a tumultuous 2020 and you know look look ahead to 2021?
1: Well, Santosh, I would certainly say there are a couple big themes among where BCOs are coming from. Certainly, the disruption seen this year uh, in in container flow has been difficult to manage. And this is because the volume spiked and nobody anticipated that that would happen to the degree that it did. Uh, e-commerce is certainly a huge theme and E-commerce requires uh, greater reliability and greater visibility in the supply chain, and that, in many cases, is still lacking, and technology is still playing catch-up in order to achieve the, 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 the levels of visibility and reliability that, that e-commerce supply chains uh, demand. Uh, in the in the ocean space, uh, you know, there's I think a difficult transition underway because for for many years, uh, BCOs were able to uh, negotiate fairly low rates, uh, and in many cases, were able to negotiate lower and lower rates as each year went by. So they were able to look like heroes within their organizations and say, "Look, I was able to get rates even lower than I did last year." Well. You know, as we were talking earlier, we may be in, a, in an era where the carriers have consolidated to the point where, where lower and lower rates may no longer be achievable for, B, for BCOs. And so there may need to be uh, a certain amount of resetting of expectations within, within large organizations in terms of their ocean spend that is probably just beginning. And when we look towards uh, TPM next year, uh, which we're going to be doing virtually… That is going to be one of the big themes that we're going to be discussing. In other words, to what degree has the ocean environment really shifted and to what degree are the carriers really more in the driver's seat than they were before? And if so, what does that mean for BCOs? And what does it mean for for carriers in terms of if you're going to be charging more, uh, if in the past you really weren't investing in service, you know, you were cutting vessel speeds and that kind of thing like we were talking about. Well, how can you now invest in service so as to create value for your customers?
2: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. With that, Peter, Eric, uh, it was great to have you both on. Uh, I, kn- I know we covered a lot of ground, but I, I think this is a super interesting topic area. And, and I think like you both said, um, the the future strategy uh, has been is unproven. It it it's still uncertain whether this integration approach, um, this uh, consolidation, will really result in in kind of the end state everybody's expecting. Um, but equally, look forward to having you both on, and uh, hopefully seeing you both soon. Uh, I know uh, we we have not had the pleasure of enjoying a cocktail yet this year, but hopefully 2021 will will bring that as well.
0: Thanks so much for having me back, Santosh. Thank you,
1: Santosh. Great to be with you today and look forward to that as well. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our
1: latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.